Hello crowded beer gardens and outdoor hairdressers of the nation, well of England at least, welcome back to another session of illegal indoor mingling in the bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this edition, heartbreak for fans of MasterChef and Top of the Pops 1991, what does the reaction to the passing of Prince Philip tell us about what the monarchy really means to most people in Britain? Normal life might be creeping back in the form of shops, gyms and outdoor cafes, but are we fooling ourselves if we think that normal politics is ever coming back? And after that storm in a teacup about the next James Bond possibly not being a white guy, why do we invest so much in fictional characters? All that and more on today's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. Before we start, a little bit of news about the podcast. Our Friday edition has clashed with our semi-detached sibling podcast, Oh God, What Now? For a while now, it comes out on Friday morning too, and some listeners have found themselves a little bit swamped. So from this week, we're moving the Friday Bunker to Saturday. So that'll be a show every morning from Monday to Thursday, then Oh God, What Now? on Fridays, and a new weekend bunker on Saturday mornings. Patreons, you'll still get all the dailies a day early and ad-free, everybody else just search patreon bunker podcast to find out what you're missing now with that out of the way let's meet today's panel first up welcome back man of many talents alex andreo hello alex hello andrew how you doing you right i'm all right (laughs) good now david cameron and Greensill. Cameron finally opened his trap over the weekend, saying that uh, there are important lessons to be learned from his conduct, whatever they might be. But he didn't apologise for his uh, texting Rishi Sunak to try and get uh, backing for the Greensill Finance Corporation. Mm. Uh, What do you make of this? Is Is this one snowballing? Is it dying? Is it fading? No, no, it's definitely not dying. So just to give a little bit of context, because I'm left with the impression that a lot of people think this is just about a little bit of sort of dodgy lobbying, stepping over the line, maybe using your contacts in a way you shouldn't. It is that, but it's not just that, because Mm. the company in question, its activities are under criminal investigation in Germany. Mm. Uh, Credit Suisse is overhauling an entire division and suspending bonuses in order to contain the fallout from what is emerging. So we are talking about a company whose international practices are causing a massive scandal at the moment. And that, I think, adds to the the problem Cameron has at the moment, because he wasn't lobbying a little too hard on behalf of Greenpeace, was he? No. He was lobbying a little too hard on behalf of a company that has some very, has been doing some very questionable stuff. And the enormous irony of data, this is the guy who said lobbying is the next big scandal waiting to break. <laughs> and then it's like, hold on, let me break it by doing yeah. it. As governments go, you would expect this one to do the least about this particular issue. Do you think we're going to see any changes or this being addressed at all in this parliament? Well, look, the their first the first uh, port of call was to say that Cameron has been completely exonerated. That didn't fly because it was only technically true, because basically the registrar of consultant lobbyists merely said the relevant legislation didn't apply to him because he was an employee, not a consultant. So the next uh, uh, milestone for the Conservatives was to say, well, look, but we have clean hands because Rishi Sunak did not actually approve Greensill for the the loan scheme Cameron was lobbying for. Ergo, this is a storm in the teacup. But again, while th- that is technically true, it, was, it obscures the fact that they approved him for a different loan scheme, mm. um, which has a, a, a limit of £50 million, but they approved him for eight uh, of those loans to a total of 400 million. So that wasn't flying either. And I think they've been pushed now into uh, uh, basically ordering an independent inquiry. Uh, They've put a man called, a legal expert called Nigel Boardman in charge. I don't know much about him other than the fact that uh, Johnson appointed him to the board of the British Museum. Friend of the show, Joe Maum, who knows his potatoes, is saying that if you wanted a cover-up or a whitewash, then Nigel Boardman does not seem like an obvious choice. Oh, interesting. Mm. Well, that, that one's going to obviously unveil itself over and over in the weeks to come. Also joining us on today's show, we've got writer and editor Justin Quirk. Hello, Justin. Hello, Andrew. Thank you for having me. 
It's a pleasure. Um, it is pass out to help out week as the pubs are reopening, at least for outside drinking. It looks like around 99%, uh, well, groups representing around 99% of preventable deaths from COVID have now been inoculated. Under 50 is the next in line. Is there an argument for unlocking faster, do you think, as the CRG would have us believe? Um, you know, Are you going to be boozing for Britain tonight? Um, well, on, on the, uh, the will I be boozing point, uh, probably not. I actually gave up booze about a year ago for general lockdown. Why do you hate Britain, Justin? Well, I'm just a bit concerned that what little tolerance I had has just been <laughs> if I If I do go out and resume the sesh in the Hungry Horse in Kingston tonight, I'll uh, have about a quarter of a pint and then wake up in the bins having bitten some <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I think it's probably best for all concerned that I uh, remain abstemious at this point. I mean, it does look like the, the momentum to open everything is now, Boris Johnson used the word irreversible, which makes you think he's going to reverse it very, very quickly. Is this it now? We're not, there's not going to be any, any further reverses. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we could well do. I mean, I, I deal a lot with people in hospitality in my day job and nobody that I'm speaking to is treating this on, treating this as a foregone conclusion or something mm. that might not have a few jackknifes in the road. And I think it's a really interesting case where, you know, you've said you've had this push from people like the CRG um, who obviously have no medical knowledge, very little business knowledge. And it's the same sort of, you know, arms folded golf club for there. I said it bluster. <laughs> they come out with on everything. Yeah. It's like, you know, the people who clog up every local Facebook group moaning about low traffic neighborhoods and bike lanes. <laughs> about stuff and I, I think what we've seen really throughout this whole year and I think we're still seeing now is that the public and people in business who are actually at the coalface of this stuff are a long long way ahead of the politicians and I think to give them their credit I think most of the public have been far more sensible and nuanced about this stuff and have acted before you know waiting for instruction like I say everyone I know who's in hospitality and these people have lost their shirts in the last year and they're really not hanging out the bunting at this point. They're really taking it very incrementally. And back after too long, we have Marie Leconte, freelance political journalist and author of Haven't You Heard? A Merciless Dissection of Westminster's Gossip Culture. Welcome back to the bunker, Marie. How are you? Uh, I'm all good, thank you. Very happy about Pubsmas. Pubsmas, yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, it was Pubsmas Eve last night and tomorrow will be Pub Boxing Day. I have to ask you, as someone who's written in detail about the gossip culture of of Westminster. Are you jonesing for it now after a year without? Oh, it's actually terrible, actually. I was thinking about that recently because I was um, chatting to someone who's normally a contact and, you know, we'll kind of, again, talk about, you know, gossip, someone who's normally quite well connected and stuff. And I realised that all our WhatsApp conversation um, for the past, like, two or three months has been about video games uh, we've both been playing. Uh, so Lord. from, you know, Zelda and Mario and stuff, because that's all we have to talk about. Um, and oh, same, God. actually, same as Source in the House of Lords, all we chatted about was Luigi's Mansion 3 uh, on the Nintendo Switch. So, you know, things are dire, I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Marie, France has gone back into lockdown. and uh, The vaccination campaign there has been mixed. It was about 15% of people had their first shot compared to 47% here in the UK last week. It has picked up a little bit lately. I think France hit the 10 million shots target early i think it was a week earlier than expected what are the reasons for it being not so great in france um well, i think that there's a bunch of them really the first one was i think a bad political call because france has historically always been quite anti-vax there's quite a lot of anti-vax sentiment um in the country and so i think the government assumed from my understanding that you know they had to as a result you know kind of roll out really carefully and slowly so people would understand that that was not the state you know sort of like making them do anything but actually, you know, as we saw in Britain, I think the best way to deal with vaccine hesitancy is just to vaccinate everyone as fast as you can. And then people will actually catch up because they feel like that's what happened here. But no, instead, so I think that they lent into it and, you know, which helped a bit, but also it meant that it was very slow. Then, I mean, I think supply was the massive thing as well, which was the fact that, you know, through the EU contracts, um, EU countries did not get as many vaccines as Britain, especially in the first few weeks and months. Um, and then I think lack of organisation, like more, I think, looking you know kind of uh, more anecdotally when I look at my, my relatives and friends um in France and so my grandmother uh, was vaccinated quite early on luckily but the entire appointment apparently took an entire hour she was in there for a whole hour um you know from you know having a chat to people first and then you know doing it and then having to stay for 15 minutes etc um, and also the center she was doing it at was only vaccinating in, in a wonderfully French way from about sort of you know 9 a.m until 5 p.m Monday to Friday um <laughs> Which, which obviously you know, drove her insane and me too. But um, but yes, I think, it, again, it was a kind of mix of things. But France has seemingly picked up the pace now. And actually, 
there was quite an interesting speech by Macron, um, was it a couple of weeks ago, where he, you know, he, he rarely admits, um, you know, that he caused something wrong. I think most politicians have a tendency to never admit that they got it wrong, but he kind of got quite close to it and said that, you know, basically France and like many other leaders did not believe a vaccine really was just around the corner by the end of last year. And so didn't we put, you know, everything in place the way Britain did perhaps. Um, so that's why they had some catching up to do. But yeah, no, I think we're getting to just over 400,000 jabs a day now and seven days a week, I'm happy to announce. Um, so so it, it is getting there, but I think it was an especially bumpy start. So it's been a very strange week with the death of Prince Philip so sudden, so unexpected, shaking out all sorts of odd impulses from the British public and from our institutions. The BBC cancelled all programmes on BBCs 1 and 2 and shut down BBC 4 in its entirety. Coronation Street didn't go out. But while most people seem to accept that the death of a 99-year-old man is just part of the circle of life, we were also told by other voices that Britain was behaving exactly like North Korea for marking the death of the Queen's husband. Justin, the reaction to Prince Philip's death from the public seems to be fairly muted. BBC ratings were badly down for the, the huge sprawling news special. Highest rated TV show that was Gogglebox. Did it surprise you that perhaps we, you know, we didn't react as a, a nation of front pages of the Express? Not really. It's an odd role that he occupies because I think obviously, you know, he's sort of like a significant, hugely significant figure within the royal family, but then didn't have a sort of function in the way that, you know, the Queen does or even sort of Prince Charles does. So I think people felt slightly odd about him in that, well, he's clearly important and he's been there for our entire lives, but what does him going actually change? So I think people's response a little odd for that. I also think it's one of those cases where I'm quite wary about projecting my feelings onto the whole country because, you know, my response I saw from everyone I know on Twitter was, oh, God, this is completely excessive. Why are they, you know, not showing Top of the Pops reruns? But, you know, I live in, like, the edge of Surrey, not, you know, massively out in the sticks, but I can say here the entire town centre is covered in Union Jack flags. A pub near me has raised a Union Jack specifically so it can lower it to half-mast. And all the people on, you know, my local market Facebook group are posting up photos of, you know, when he visited the market 10 years ago and it was the best day of their life. So I think much as it's tempting for people like us in sort of our bubble to go, this is all complete bollocks, why is anyone talking about it? And, you know, while I think it wasn't like the hysteria levels of Princess Diana's death, thank God, I think it it did matter a lot to, you know, a significant amount of the country. And I understand the BBC's thing of, you know, they're clearly quite on the ropes from the government and their outriders in the media at the moment. And you just know that people from the Mail, people from the Sun, people from the Telegraph were scrutinising every single second of their output, looking for something they could have an enormous cry wank over for the next week. And it would be sod's law. You know, have a channel like BBC4 that runs on repeats. They would have shown one of those old, like, novelty record videos with a spitting image puppet of him in or something. Or something. I, I, I fully understand why if you were an editor at BBC4 and you just went, do you know what? Let's just play it really, really safe because something is going to creep through the wire that seemed completely innocuous 20 years ago and it will bring down the mother of all trouble now. So I do understand that. Hmm. The coverage was planned in detail months and in fact years ago wasn't it because those strong hints that that this wasn't a reaction to the state of politics now but a reaction actually to the bbc's coverage of the queen mother's death which was attacked by those very same papers as insufficiently respectful but you know whichever way you slice it he he was the last but one of that generation who knew the second world war firsthand and that does resonate enormously with the country doesn't it you know he and the queen were that sort of small older group of royals that older people tend to think are completely in, you know, inviolable. You know, are we any closer to rethinking the monarchy when the Queen goes? I don't know. I mean, I always, you always sort of think, you know, it must be on the verge of some huge modernising move. And then it kind of creaks a bit and things sort of continue. You know, it's an incredibly enduring institution. And I mean, I think, I think what's interesting is it really made me think how much of when we talk as a country about, you know, the monarchy, like this big sort of collective, with him going, with the Queen Mum going, you know, with some of the others, really, it is just the Queen, I think, now. You know, I think in terms of the the sort of sole figure left in the family that a lot of that is freighted onto. And 
I think you're right. I, I think, you know, there was that piece that it got recirculated a lot this week, the Guardian long read on the protocols for what happens when the Queen dies. And I'd recommend if anyone hasn't read that, it's, it's a really, really interesting piece, partly just for the kind of sheer oddity of all these sort of steps that have to take place for the transfer of power. But also it sort of explores like the emotional dimension of what's likely to happen. And there's a line in it where he says, you know, people who don't think they will cry will cry. Mm. And I think there probably is something in that. You know, I would broadly consider myself a Republican. I have no real interest in the royal family. But I think when that final generation of that passes, that will be a very, very strange moment for the country in a way that we maybe don't fully expect it to be at the moment. And I'd also recommend um, Johnny Diamond's obituary for Prince Philip on the BBC site. I thought did a really, really good job, as you say, of just conveying that sprawl that he kind of lived across. You know, parents met at Queen Victoria's funeral. One of his aunts was killed with the Romanovs. You know, the his family cleaved in two where three of the sisters married Nazis. He, you know, came here and fought for the Navy. And, you know, there is a sense, whatever you think of them as a family, and as I say, I'm, I'm no great defender of it, it is something, it is historically significant. Marie, my, my own reaction was that this feels like kind of the end of something in Britain. I'm not really sure what it is, but some kind of version of Britain is kind of coming to its end here. As a citizen of a proud republic yourself, what, what did you make of our minor royal paroxysm this week? I actually thought it was a lot more muted than it ended up being, partly because a friend lied to me some months ago and told me <laughs> that all shops would be closed for a week after Philip died. Um, and I believed him because I'm stupid. Um, so actually, it was kind of <laughs> underwhelming in that sense because I was like, "Oh, actually, no shops are you know closing." My friends are just very mean. Um, but then and again, I, I think muted would be the main reaction. I thought it was actually quite. So again, I, I similarly have no strong feelings either way. I think about the royal family, but but yeah, I, I did find it quite touching that, as far as I could tell, the reaction from lots of people who again have no strong feelings about the royal family was just to to be very sad for the queen. You know, not even because she's a royal or anything, just saying. This is a very old woman who'd been with someone for 73 years and now he's passed away. Not even as a royal, just as, as an old woman, you know, who, who kind mm. of uh, lost her partner. But which in a way I wonder as well if the pandemic hasn't put that, you know, put, put a new sort of angle on that. Because it has been a year of constant grief and constant deaths everywhere, especially, of, you know, of the elderly. Mm. Um, so, so I wonder if a lot of people, ha- you know, are not seeing that through that kind of same prism. So. In that respect, I, I did find it quite touching, I guess. Uh, well, people like me and probably people who listen to this podcast avoid coverage of the royal family a lot. We sort of dismiss it as a, as a soap that, that doesn't matter, that's sort of part of the window dressing of Britain, and you know, it's, a, it's a tourist magnet. Are we wrong to think that? I mean, because it it's a political institution we've seen in the past two years involved in active politics. Yes, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's a big part of the soft power um, of Britain as well on the inter- international stage. I know most of my French family avidly watch The Crown um, <laughs> and, and, and try and discuss it with me and actually ends up in the slightly ridiculous situation where I, you know, the, the long-term immigrant to the UK, have no idea what they're on about because I've never watched The Crown. Um, and they're like, but you know, you know, that princess, I, I, I'm very sorry, I have no idea. So I yeah. think it, it's a big part. And and again, you know, with, without stating the complete obvious as well, but basically everyone in this country, you know, for the entire time they've been alive, the Queen and Prince Philip have been around, like literally since they were born. And I think that that's always going to create a hall, I think, once those people go. Alex, um, as, as happens all the time, the horribly polarised voices were the loudest voices. It was either he was a flawless war hero or he was a misogynist and a racist. And those are the, the two kind of angles that got pushed louder and louder, in particularly in social media. Twitter's not real life. We keep having to say this on the podcast. But <laughs> what, what do you think about this? What, what's worse, the kind of you know lack of compassion or the need to conscript anything into a culture war? I mean, every memorial involves an element of hagiography. That's just normal. There's a time and a place for everything. We all have people we know who are not very nice, but we instinctively know that someone's wake or funeral is probably not the right forum to stand up and declare them a ghastly racist. So maybe the same goes, you know. Mm. Maybe it just requires a little bit of manners and common sense. I don't know whether he was necessarily any more of a racist than any other upper-class British male in their 90s, was he? I mean, like, we've all got relatives of whom you keep having to nudge them and say, you can't say that anymore. Please moderate your language. 
I don't know because mm. I, you know I never met the man, and I think <laughs> what I, as a foreigner, I mean, admittedly, I've been in this country for decades, but this is really a peculiarly British thing. So I have always found this reciprocal sense of ownership fascinating because the royal family see, sees Brits as its subjects, but in a strange way, much of the British public, certainly the press. Uh, feel and act as if they have as much right over the royal family. And my sense is that in times of joy, like a wedding, that seems like a, a, a welcome amplifier. But in times of difficulty, like a divorce or a death, it seems like quite a cruel intrusion. So in this sense, they are treated as simu simultaneously superhuman and subhuman. So my version of sympathy and respect is to leave them alone and say nothing. Nigel Farage's version of sympathy and respect is to tweet his view as to whom should and should not be invited to their funeral. I mean, in what other fucking circumstances would you even fathom doing that? Saddling up to, to a family you've never met and going, oh, that that grandson of yours, he's a bit of a bugger. Don't invite him to the funeral. I mean, to me, that is the the aspect that seems disrespectful and outrageous. There was a, a, a Sky News correspondent outside Buckingham Palace, and behind him were people holding up that day's newspaper with Prince Philip's face on it and taking selfies. And during that time, he was saying how everyone he's spoken to feels like they've lost someone they knew and has a profound sense of grief. But I'm sorry, what's going on behind you in reality completely counterfactual to that? Yeah, I mean, there is kind of yeah, that, that strange idea that uh, the royal family is not really part of our political establishment. It's like an interactive role play game where you can kind of control the characters. <laughs> <laughs> where you kind of like you've got you've got a joystick and 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 then like oh look new character introduced at this level it's Meghan Markle and her powers <laughs> are the following look how she's disrupted the gameplay. In many ways, this is just the wrong time to have this conversation because any anything I say will be considered cruel. But you know, if I were to ignore their position as my superiors by birth and divine right, I am absolutely sympathetic with their personal grief. But at what other point am I allowed to ignore that position? The answer mm. is never. You know, when they're sheltering one of their kids that has serious questions to answer in a, in a sexual exploitation of minors case, am I allowed to ignore their position at that point and see them just... Uh, as a family he's doing interviews now but only on this subject <laughs> he's not available for interviews on any other subjects which is strange really okay that's enough royalty daily life is supposedly returning to pre-pandemic norms in moves boris johnson says are irreversible as i said earlier warning klaxon but are we kidding ourselves if we think that normal politics are ever coming back whatever normal politics are we're coming up to the fifth anniversary of the brexit referendum meaning that british politics has been abnormal meaning dominated by chaos questions of identity rather than party and of course the pandemic for over half a decade is this the way it's going to be from now on is, is there no going home alex britain's politics have been crazy for a number of years hence the existence of podcasts like this. Do we even know what normal is anymore? As you know, I've ne never considered the politics of this country normal, lacking as it <laughs> does a proper hard left. It is essential, in my view, not because, of, you know, not because I personally long for communism, but because it balances the, the overturned window of politics and keeps the centre-left honest. So maybe normal pre-COVID or pre-Brexit should not be what we're aiming for at all. Maybe this is a good opportunity to push for change, to push for, for electoral reform, to push for constitutional reform. I mean, among the aspects that we would have considered to be part of what we consider normal politics would be that you would expect ministers to tell the truth and to abide by the ministerial code and to be punished <laughs> if they don't. And that just yeah, doesn't none happen of that. anymore. None of that. Yeah, it's all gone that, hasn't it? So if you've <laughs> lost the guardrail of convention, even forgetting the landscape of party politics, that, you know, good chaps will do what's right. If you yeah. can't put that back, what do you do? What kind of a new normal can you create? 
all these things are executive overreach. So my instinct would be to say you tighten the rules, you do away with convention, you have an explicit written constitution, and you empower the legislature and the judiciary. The problem is <laughs> we've seen the same thing happen in the states in the last few years, and they have all those things. You know, there were, there were enough missteps in Trump's administration to bring down all the previous ones and then some, and yet there he is. So I, I don't know that it's about the letter of the law or the tightening of the rules as much as it is about public mood being in a really weird place. So the only way to the only way to deal with that is to actually restore the efficacy of that convention through the power of public <laughs> revulsion, through the power of fear of the public. Well, yeah, but that's a philosophical question, isn't it? Once you've become desensitized to dishonesty, can you become resensitized? I don't think so. So once your once your expectations hit bottom, how do you raise them? So we need people who are not jaded to enter the fray, which seems to me that the solution is, I'm afraid, demographic. We need people to be dying off the top end and younger people to be coming in to somehow refresh the, 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 what people expect of politicians. Yes, deselect the electorate is what you're describing there, Alex. <laughs> using no, the power of time. no, I'm, descri I'm describing <laughs> the very natural process by which the electorate deselects itself over time. And we're back to the cycle of life, the Lion King. So, yeah, I mean, look, we, we've seen, you know, Green Sylvie mentioned earlier, cronyism, the Dominic Cummings approach of, you know, a, a room where the technology rules everything. We've seen all these sort of nightmares in the past, you know, couple of years. Yeah. You compare it to the Expenser scandal in 2009, which was this kind of neutron bomb in politics, which just wiped out a bunch of people. Mm. But what, by the standards of now, were just kind of rather petty little, little um, you know, transgressions, weren't they? It's like, and that's not 60 years ago. That's a decade ago. Yeah. Why, why have we gone from there to here? Are we, are we just so punch drunk now? I don't know. I mean, would do I think it would be different if it were, for for some reason, the Telegraph that we're going after the Green Seal story? I think it might have been, you know. So I think mm. it actually plays on such fine margins. The problem is that, you know, through the expenses scandals, through Levison, through all these things, we fail to ask the deeper questions, which is, why do these companies fork out these enormous salaries for people who are on paper inexperienced in their sector, if not for the crucial asset of their contacts list? That's not a healthy state of affair. And that's the area we need to begin to question this notion of above board, this notion that uh, as long as you declare stuff, somehow conflict of interest goes away. It doesn't. Marie, you're in Parliament. When Parliament's open, you're rubbing, rubbing shoulders with these people. We've got what is now a very united Conservative Party, which isn't very conservative. They're quite English nationalist, and they govern in crisis and they're in permanent campaign mode, which has suited them during Brexit, a bit less so during uh, the pandemic. Do they have what it takes to kind of govern in peacetime, as it were? Will this kind of governing work when, when the surrounding environment at least gets back to normal, if not politics itself? Ooh, that's a good question. Just um, before I get in on that, just quickly, and, I'm, and I, I don't usually make a habit of defending lobbyists, really. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, they do that job quite well themselves. But the, the one quick thing I'd say is that I do think that it's not only about contact, but it's also about, you know, sort of people who used to work in politics going into public affairs, um, you know, a, a lot of whom I interviewed uh, for my book. Um, it, it is partly about basically just understanding those people genuinely understanding the machine of parliament, the machinery of government and how things work. And, you know, and you'll, you'll hire if you want to understand really how the laws work or get someone from the laws, etc. You know, civil service, same parliament, the same. Um, and, and I don't think that's inherently nefarious. But no, but coming back to the main question, the sense I get is that People are incredibly bored of politics. Like people, you know, your average or you know, man or woman does not want to care about politics most of the time. Um, and that's why if you look back at, you know, 2019, I think the election was effectively won by Boris Johnson because he said, elect me, I'll get Brexit done, and then you'll never have to care again. Mm. And, then that, and that clearly clearly worked because he won by a landslide. Um, and I think, you know, obviously people after that resentfully were made to, you know, 
care again about politics. <laughs> <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I suspect, you know, and again, so anecdotally, I found so I, I'm freelance. And, you know, usually the way my work would work is that I'd write quite a lot for the, you know, nerdy, I guess, publications and do quite a lot of, you know, politics expla- explainery things for perhaps the publications that don't normally do tons of politics. And I have had chat after chat after chat with the editors of the latter effectively saying, you know, we really like your writing, but sadly, our readers have completely stopped caring to be that women's magazines or magazines for young people, etc. They're like, you know, our readers just do not want to read about politics again. So I think that, you know, we'll go back to normal in the sense that people will not care. And also there's going to be, you know, there's still a massive majority. So I don't think, you know, that there'll be the sort of chaos we had for that long. What I will say, what I think is that is a known unknown um, over the rest of this parliament is how the conservative benches uh, will start behaving. Mm. Because obviously in, in, in a government, you know, in a, in a parliament with a government with a big majority, the real opposition really is the government's own benches. And so, you know, and, and I feel like, you know, we've had a massive generation of new MPs coming in and new intake. And they basically arrived in you and they spent about four seconds in parliament. Then the pandemic happened. So we don't really know them and they've not really had a chance yet to, I think, find out what they care about, what they believe in, what they'll go against the government on and what they'll go, you know, government with. Um, and so I think once that happens and once factions as well start forming again post-Brexit, for a very long time, you know, the only game in town was Brexit. So you were either pro, pro or anti and that was kind of that. Now that's out of the way, I think. And, you know, once the dust settles, effectively, we'll see how the Tory benches decide to sort of divide themselves. I suspect, basically, things things might get very boring again. They'll probably seem interesting if you're in the bubble or if you're very interested in politics. But actually, I reckon that, again, public interest will be at an all-time low in about, you know, this time last year, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's probably a bad thing but I'm not sure it can be helped. So we may actually end up with normal levels of political interest with two abnormal political parties because Labour is not behaving in a way that, well, maybe it is just the norm for Labour, this kind of fratricidal, you know, internal civil war. Starmer's trying to do normal, isn't he? Not overdramatic, not partisan. Is there is there hope for normality in Labour, do you think, that they may actually, does it all just depend on whether Starmer is perceived to be a success? Um, well, I think Labour just, you know, if there's one thing the Labour Party really hates is the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I reckon that, you know, in that respect, the infighting will keep going because that's what Labour does. But also, I think that's what any party does if it's been in opposition for long enough, because you only really get, you know, your benches to behave if you're in government, if you know, any of the country's watching you. And if that's not happened for a very long time, then I think it's really hard to get discipline from your own parliamentary party. So on that front, you know, I, I'm sure they'll be squabbling because, again, that, that's what the left does. You know, and that's not a British thing. I think that's what the left does in every single country mm. where there's a left. In ah, yes, but um, if but- there were a proper left, uh, because, you see, it's external pressure that keeps broad churches together. And I think if there were mm. a proper left, it would both provide a home for some of the people who more vehemently want to pursue those kinds of policies and the external pressure would keep Labour better together. That's an impassioned plea for the NIP and Tusk there, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that being said, I feel like a lot of the attacks actually on Starmer recently have come from the centre and the right of the Labour Party. So it's not, I I do really think that, you know, it's in their DNA. It's all they do. It's it's all they know. Um, But that being said, I think, yeah, Keir himself, Keir himself, if anything, I would say his problem is that he is trying too hard to not be political. And I think there's, you know, and, and I kind of admire, I think, his effort to an extent. But there's a point at which you do have to say, you know, you're the leader of the opposition. Politics is kind of your job. Um, but but so we'll see. But, you know, but that being said, the election is probably still years away. What we know from basically every poll and every focus group um, is that many, many voters and especially recent uh, Labour to Conservative switches do not want Labour to uh, attack the government during the pandemic. They think that's, a you know, bit of you know a, a moment where the country should pull together and kind of all work together so actually you know that there's not there's not much he can do at the moment anyway justin you've been quite keen on sort of thinking about the psychology of of our current crop of politicians and particularly the brexit generation and how they're quite an odd and unusual bunch in sort of terms of upbringing education background a, a psychological makeup i mean what does it mean when the political class is self-selecting from people like michael gove or indeed, Boris Johnson himself. I find this so fascinating, but I think there's because most of the political landscape is so odd in terms of the people that are drawn into it, the characters who are populating it. 
I think we really lose a sense of that because there's almost no control group. And it's like when someone like Jess Phillips comes in and there's these reams of coverage going, oh my God, Jess Phillips is this complete oddity. You know, there's like, you know, plain speaking, it's like there is a woman like Jess Phillips in every single office in the country, you know, doing a very mm. good job. She's a completely normal person. If you had ever shared an office with someone like Michael Gove or Mark Francois or you know, Jeremy Corbyn, to be quite honest, 20 years later, you would still be talking to people about the biggest weird. <laughs> but they're, they're really, you know, one, one hesitates to get into the realm of sort of armchair psychology, but you do find yourself looking at these people and not just within the party, but also, you know, the kind of outrides around it, the sort of the Daniel Hammond characters and yeah, someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg. And you look, oh, God. Yeah, and you're just like, what went wrong in these people's childhoods? You know, what desperate need for attention were they left with? And, you know, it really, you start to think, you know, I don't think a lot of these issues can be unpicked politically. You know, these feel like things which are, psychological but then the corollary of that is also the psychology of the public i think is fascinating at the moment i mean with my my other sort of head on i do a lot of work around advertising agencies and advertising campaigns and you know that's all about telling stories and working with ideas that the public have and you can basically gain that you know there are things that you know work in terms of the psychology of marketing the public at the moment when it comes to politics seem so scattergun and capricious, you know, things that you think will be complete career enders just fly by. But then the flip side of that, which I feel more optimistic about, is that I don't think this sense that, look, all bets are off, it's just a one-way ticket to the basement in terms of things just being ever more scandalous. I don't think that's set in stone. And um, on the Times podcast uh, the other week, Daniel Finkelstein was talking about this. He was talking about it from a conservative perspective. It's very interesting. And he was saying with Johnson and the kind of sleaze around him, and he just said, you know, these things, like, they don't matter, they don't matter, and then suddenly they do. And I think this is what we're seeing with Cameron at the moment, where, as Alex said at the start of the show, you know, there are reasons why that Greensill story is a lot more murky than it first appears. Most of the public don't get that. They're just picking up on this sense that something is off. You know, the same with, like, Cummings and Barnard Castle. Barnard Castle was a long, long way down the list of the worst things that Dominic Cummings was responsible for. But for whatever reason, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And I think counterintuitively for Johnson, and again, talking about, you know, the psychology of the realm in which he's operating, I think this period, as normality returns, may actually be more dangerous for him. Because I think the sense that everyone's just been firefighting for the last year has bought him something of a free pass Mm. and allowed him to escape a lot of scrutiny. And as Marie says, as we return to more boring times, I think the likelihood that something he does, and it may be something relatively trivial, just snags with the public and they just go, hang on, that's not right. Mm. And, you know, and I say with Cameron at the moment, as far as I can see, he has just machine-gunned his reputation in the last month. I, re- I don't see him coming back from this. When Britain left the EU, the government chose not to take part in Erasmus, the European Union's student exchange programme. Instead, Number 10 decided to set up its own programme, the Turing Scheme, named after godfather of computing Alan Turing, with the details first being released last month. How does Turing stack up against Erasmus? We spoke to somebody who knows. Hi, I'm Paul James Cardwell. I'm a professor of law at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. Uh, Turing System has been launched just this year. In terms of how it's going to work, a lot of the features are going to be fairly familiar with what we were used to under Erasmus. Individuals don't apply for it directly, but rather universities and other bodies uh, apply for it, and then they distribute the funds to people participating in the schemes. First thing to know about the Erasmus programme, it is a programme of the European Union. So it's been in place for 30 years and over that time it has evolved. So originally it was designed for higher education students at university to spend a period of time in another country. That's now expanded and it's including all kinds of other different placements because it's been 
embedded in the policies which are designed to tackle problems like youth unemployment. So the idea being that you gain some skills and that helps you in the job market in another member state as well as your own. So it is a big scheme and the UK is no longer part of that. In terms of bureaucracy, one of the complaints about anything to do with the EU is the amount of bureaucracy and so on. Whether the level of bureaucracy now that it's just handled in the UK will change, again, we're not really sure. But the advantage that the Erasmus system had is that it was agreed over what's called a multi-annual framework. So at the moment, the new scheme is launched under Erasmus for the next seven or so years. So you know that that funding is there because the states are paying into the budget over that period of time. With Turing, we're told you know, about how much money is available, but that's just on a one-year basis. The assumption is that it will continue, but there's no actual guarantee of that. It's very difficult to know exactly what the take-up with Turing will be. First of all, there are many students who are on degree programmes which include a year abroad, so they have to go out somewhere. So typically we would think of things like uh, language degrees. Whether the level of funding that might be available for those students under Turing will be comparable to what they might have got under Erasmus, we don't yet know. So much is going to depend on what happens there. Whether it actually encourages students who are less well-off to participate, I'm less certain. And I do worry that the lack of a potential availability of funding under Turing to the students who've benefited from it under Erasmus will mean that the programme won't be seen uh, as a success. With Turing, there's nothing to stop students being charged for their placement abroad by the host university if they wish. It relies on universities and other institutions concluding fee waiver agreements. In other words, you exchange students and you don't charge each of them fees. That's very, very difficult to do. And particularly when you start talking about the elite US universities that the government have been trying to to promote as an advantage of Turing, there's nothing really in the scheme to suggest that universities overseas will be as keen to cooperate with the UK. Nothing really changes for that under the new scheme. The funding is only available to students who are going out. And as I say, it doesn't cover potential tuition fees. And that might be off-putting for quite a lot of students and is a key difference between Turing and the Erasmus scheme. Finally, while we're doing national nervous breakdowns around history, identity, conflict, class and self-image, what about that black James Bond then? There was a minor kerfuffle last week when the Bridgerton actor Reggae Jean Page was briefly in the frame to replace Daniel Craig after No Time to Die comes out sometime in 2037. Cue instant you can't have a black bond auto posts on all social media. But why not? Why do people get so hung up on the ethnicity of recurring fictional characters? In fact, the next 007 not James Bond, the title 007, is going to be a black British woman, Lashana Lynch. Uh, she plays Maria Rambo in Captain Marvel, nerds. Alex, why do certain kinds of people get so het up about this? Does it matter if Bond isn't a white guy or isn't a guy? Well, it matters to white guys, I think. I had people explaining to me at length about a, a couple of years ago why I, as a Greek, should be outraged that the BBC cast Achilles as black. And I was trying to engage with them, and I was trying to show them photos of ancient pottery in which Achilles is black, um, in order to demonstrate that the ancients didn't really care about the the representation of the skin color of fictional characters, that it was more about internal qualities, and that if I were casting an actor, those are the things I would look for best. But there is an element that, you know, it's become part of the, you know, the woke brigade are taking everything from us that we love. And and it's become a, a, a sort of cultural battle. So let's uh, make a deal, all right? So Jesus has been cast as blonde and blue-eyed in just about everything. Um, which is a ludicrous piece of ethnographicity. So cast me as Jesus and you can have Bond back. You want to recast Jesus? Cast me. (laughs) And you can have Bond back. Okay. I mean, whenever I see these things, I just kind of think, 
you know what? I want you to go all in and have a black female bond. Just do it. Just do an Asian bond. Let's have gay bond. Just just do it. Just to wind them up. I'm so sick of these. Just to see their heads explode inside their helmets like Mars attacks. Exactly, yeah. The name is Bond, Gay Bond. Yeah, that would be great. Um, But, I mean, the serious point is that, like, these are recurring characters who do, you know, in, in the contemporary world of fiction, you do reboot characters and you look at them from different angles. You know, you are able to say, what would it be like if Britain's major kind of uh, secret agent hero stroke imperialist murderer, delete as uh, as your preferences, what if they were a black guy? What if they're a working class guy? There's Kingsman, where it's essentially, what if Bond was working class? Why did people get, and it, I, I mean, you may already have answered this, the idea that people get so sensitive about changing it from that particular slice of society? Because there's a, there's, the thing that I'm used to, and everything around me is changing, and I don't want any more of it to change. So if I feel I can influence just that one thing not changing, then I'm going to fight that battle because I have no control over what's going on with development of artificial intelligence or robotics. I have no control over what goes on in the Middle East. I have little control over climate change, but damn it, I'm going to fight for a white bond. There is an argument in favour of a white bond, which is that Ian Fleming's bond is a product of a certain time when intelligent agents, intelligence agents were white men from public schools. And Bond's, you know, Fleming's bond is this damaged, alcoholic, misogynist, sadist. He spends his entire internal monologues are about how terrible his war wounds are and other countries going to the dogs. He's not a hero in the contemporary sense. So that, in a, that isn't that worth preserving as a role and a comment that it was originally intended to be? Maybe. I guess I'm kind of offering a counterpoint here, but it's like, why do we care about Bond? I feel like, you know, there, there were obviously lots of debates about, you know, we need a female Bond. Uh, was it last year? I can't remember mm. when. And, you know, do we, do we need a female Bond? As you said, you know, James Bond, I would say, is very much an archetypal, so, you know, posh white man. As you said, you know, he sort of like drinks too much, sort of womanizing in a slightly creepy way, not always in a fun way, clearly a bit racist and so on. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, I, I didn't think, you know, women need to come and sweep in and you know, have um, own that character. Like, why not make our own? I don't really understand. I would say, obviously, I don't understand the people who feel very passionately about, you know, James Bond must be a white man. But equally, you know, I'm not that fast. Like, we can create better characters. Like, I, I think, you know, James Bond movies have been running for decades. You know, we can just create new things. And I think there's clearly people want that. If you look in you know, at Black Panther, for example, which did incredibly well. And that's always been a black character. You know, the clue's very much in the name. Um, so, so why not? Why not explore new stories? I think it, it strikes me as you know something we're all kind of fighting for over scraps. Really, why not create new characters and new stories? And fine, you know what? They can have you know the, the little James Bond who can be you know some random white dude, and and we can have better and more exciting stories and more diverse characters. Is there a similar you know proprietary attitude to characters in France I mean we just saw that Netflix remade Arsène Lupin as a black guy from the band and it was a fantastic thing and a smash hit is there a, a kind of complaining peanut gallery in France as well saying you can't have a black guy playing Arsène Lupin um, so I have to say I've not massively followed the debates around that but my guess would be that probably because France is incredibly racist um, and so it's either a case of you know I've missed it but it's definitely happening due to the massive racism in France or it's not happening but that's fine because, you know, we're definitely compensating by being extremely racist about other things. <laughs> so I don't know, for once, I don't think that's one where as a French person, I can actually claim the high ground, um, sadly. Well, the great thing about Netflix's Lupin is that it wasn't just a black guy in the role. It was about racism. It was about, you know, it, it was seeing that story through the contemporary lens, just as the kind of reboot of Sherlock tried to see Sherlock through the, the contemporary lens. Justin, before we wrap up. There's now a gay Captain America. There's a female Doctor Who. You can do Sherlock as any race or gender. Whenever I hear internet blokes going, you wouldn't do a black Superman, I think, well, yes, you would do it and you should do it. And also, you know, Superman is fictional. You can do anything you like. Is it just down to that basic core psychological level of stop messing with my childhood? Don't change things. I think that's a huge thing. I mean, I think, as Alex said, there is the kind of the obvious top note there is, you know, racism and people not being comfortable with different things. But, you know, I think we... We really need to remember, you know, we live in an ageing, stagnating country. And I think nostalgia has always been a hugely powerful and often very toxic part of our kind of national cultural makeup anyway. And I think as our population gets older and more regressive looking, it's becoming more so. And as, you know, going back to what we said at the beginning of the show, I think it's that part of the 
English mindset that enjoys squatting on local Facebook groups and complaining about, you know, why isn't Woolworths there anymore? And, you know, there is, it's, people love that shit. You know, they will, the English will eat that until the cows come home. You know, it's what Farage's entire mindset, it's Jeremy Corbyn's entire appeal. It's, you know, you know, the, the fact that the most supposedly radical force in English politics in the last 10 years has been someone banging on about the Durham Miners Gala and, you know, this sort of, you know, that, that's where we are. We love that stuff as a country. And so I think when you say to them, maybe we're going to slightly change things from how they were in your childhood, they absolutely lose it. Personally, I'm with you. I'd like them to make Bond as black as possible. Don't even give him a tuxedo. Turn him into that guy from the old Rasta film, Babylon, that just walks around dressed like a massive red, golden, green flag with a huge rod of correction as his secret weapon. Like, I would be happy with that just to see everyone lose their fucking minds. <laughs> There's a great tune by Barry Adamson, the great uh, Manchester keyboard player, member of magazine, and in one of his solo albums, he does he does the Bond theme in the old Scar style, and it begins with uh, the voice of a little kid in Jamaica talking about how Bond is his hero, and the, the killer line is, have no fear, because Bond is black, and that goes right into the tune. And you kind of think, this character can, be, can belong to anybody, yeah. you know, because... Strip away the nasties, and he's just a, a wish fulfillment hero, isn't he? I also believe that's the uh, the opening title of the excellently named set the controls for the heart of the pelvis. And that's the end of this week's Bonker Panel podcast. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with another daily and the full length show this time next week. So don't forget to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. Thanks to today's panel. Thanks to Alex Andreo. Thank you, and don't forget to cast me as Jesus. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> thanks to Justin Quirk. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to Marie LeCant. Oh, thanks for having me. Cast me as Jesus in there you go. <laughs> Jesus can be a Greek guy. Jesus can be a French lady. Jesus can be anybody. Are you remember, union lady? Listeners, thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, remember, you can back us on Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Backers get an honorary salute on the show, and here are some now. Hello and best wishes from me to Jude Martin, Jack and Daniel Schwickereth. Hello and thanks to me too and uh, best wishes to Callum Findlay, David Bickley and Andy Goss. It's a big thanks from me to Vicky Knight, Richard Rowe and Lily Cleary. And hello and best wishes from me to Laura Marcus, Martin Brent and Rebecca Bunbury. See you next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Justin Quirk and Alex Andreu. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Bunker.